Chapter 11, Part 5 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Derek McLaughlin. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. Edited by Gerald Burney Smith. Chapter 11 Christianity and Social Problems. Part 5 Christianity in Relation to Social Problems It remains to indicate the service which the Christian churches, as bearers of Christian thought and ideals, can render in the work of stimulating, universalizing, and harmonizing these efforts of the collective will to promote human welfare. THE IDEALS OF THE CHURCH Only think what the Christian religion signifies. God so loved the world, loved all the people. As Creator, Father, Providence, Redeemer, Friend, our God, as Jesus taught, lives for us. He gives us life and the will to live, creates appetites and desires and provides for their satisfaction, and all He creates is essentially good. The Divine Spirit is at the heart of all our arts, sciences, reformations, the very ferment in all the restless agitation for improvement. The demagogue is a mere caricature of the evolutionary ambitions which seethe in human history. The end is abundant, rich, varied, many-sided, harmonious life. It is this infinite, creative, active, divine life which came to noblest expression in Jesus, which is manifested in the development of the human spirit and all its institutions, laws, governments. The kingdom of God has a more splendid aim than that of the conventicle of pietists intent on saving their own souls, a larger scope than ecclesiastical intrigue and ambition. If we could only set before us all that is required for the perfection of personality, for the order and progress of the world, for the quickening of intellectual curiosity, for the finest expression of beauty, for grace and courtesy, for intellectual mastery of the knowable universe through the sciences, for harmony, friendship, and worship. All this would be found at home within the idea of the kingdom of God. International law has statesmanship, but it is petty and provincial when compared with the universal realm opened up to us by the vision of Jesus, Son of God. It is for this idea that the Church stands, if only it could realize its unique and sublime task, if only its leaders could appreciate their role in relation to business and philanthropy to artists, explorers, scientists, statesmen, philosophers, poets. The Church and its ministry have yet to learn how all-inclusive their mission is, how all the nations must bring their glory and honor into the city of God, whether they will it or not. We have been exclusive, self-centered, when we might have been inclusive, comprehensive, Catholic. We have desired to dominate and monopolize, when we were called to fraternal and sympathetic cooperation. We have abandoned vast fields of truth, art, power, as alien to our religion, when we might have transformed these forces and brought them into harmony with the highest ideals of faith. All things are yours, yet we deliberately surrendered our claim and called most of the precious values of humanity secular. The Church is not outside social problems, it is not benefactor or patron, it is not alien to the world, the Church lives upon industry. Its children are born from natural impulses in holy and legal wedlock. Its security is derived from government and law. Its ritual is enriched by poets and musicians. Its sins are those of its age. 
its vision of truth is widened by science and education, its morality is the best custom of the time, its picture of heaven is composed of democratic and neighborly experiences of friendship, its God is defined as father or king. We as Christians are, like St. Francis, brothers of the poor and even of the birds, and we are here to cooperate with all men of good will. Here we must consider, first, the possible resources of the Church for this purpose, secondly, the defects of the Church and the explanation of these defects, thirdly, illustrations of progress in the Church toward realizing its duty and its opportunity, fourthly, the wisest direction for the near future. 1. Resources of the Church The greatest book of life is the Bible, to whose exposition the Church is committed, and whose story of truth and faith is one of the chief forces of history. The Bible. So far as the Church is studying and teaching the Bible in a truly historic spirit and method, it is generating interest in human welfare. There are two tables of its law, reverence for God and regard for man. Both are assimilated and authorized in the golden rule of Jesus, and illustrated by his character and life. Inspiring Personalities so far as the Church, under the leadership of an educated ministry, knows its own history and holds before its children its heroes and martyrs, its missionaries and its philanthropists, it is generating fervor and zeal for sinning and suffering humanity. Church history and biography supply a magazine of ennobling and inspiring personal examples. Church history is a precious possession and a treasury of spiritual energy. Literature Christian literature is a vast and fruitful store of motive to kindly and beneficent action. In hymns, poems, essays, in Dante, Luther, Milton, Tennyson, Browning, Shakespeare, Webster, Macaulay, in all the most powerful authors of Christendom there runs a deep Christian undertone. Christian literature is in a very high and true sense a continuation of the Bible. We need anthologies, source books, and a library of selections with historical annotations. Much of the written stuff of the fathers and medieval theologians does not deserve the name of literature, and the people have not time to read it, nor money to buy it, nor house room to store it. Yet it is a pity to leave the jewels lost in the mass of rubbish, speculation, and superstition which makes up so much of the writings of the past. Only when the real classics in prose and verse have been selected and reprinted by competent scholars, in chronological order, with historical sequences noted, will the spiritual inheritance of the Church come into its rightful place of power and influence. But God has not left himself without a witness in other lands of high culture. India, China, Japan, and even the proverbial philosophy of Africa have literary monuments of religion, and they also are ours to use and enjoy. The pitiful mediocrity of much contemporary so-called religious literature, its waste and desolation of miserable sectarian polemics, its obscurantism and dull platitudes, might well give way to the buried and forgotten literary treasures of the world. The Personal Influence of the Members of the Church in the Home and Throughout the Community We may well count the personal influence of the members of the Church as an asset, discount with the severest justifiable criticism the conduct of Christians, they are nevertheless the salt of the earth, the light of the world, though unfortunately they often hide their lamps under a bushel and bury their talents out of sight. 
the exertion of influence reacts upon character, and he who earnestly endeavors to make his neighbors better instinctively criticizes his own standards and conduct. The army of church members are citizens and voters, masters of assemblies, judges on the bench, presidents and directors of corporations, members of clubs and associations, and trade union lawmakers and administrators, and this gives the church access to every legitimate organization of the nation. Such a power is also a responsibility. Educational Agencies The educational equipment of the churches is enormous. All the modern systems of education and research grow out of ecclesiastical institutions of the Middle Ages. Cap, gown, and hood are reminders of the uniforms of learned monks of the ancient days when clergymen monopolized scholarship. Now we are on the way to the time when all God's people will be prophets, and democracy has taken over education and made it universal. But even now lay control does not imply irreligion. When the atmosphere is flooded with light, no window can open without admitting its radiance, and while Christianity shines everywhere, it will not be excluded from state institutions. We can therefore count practically all the agencies of science and education among the resources of the Church. One may gain some idea of the extent of these educational resources by taking the statistics from the report of the United States Commissioner of Education concerning schools, colleges, and universities under church control. 2. Defects of the Church The humane impulse of primitive Christianity is partly obscured and obstructed by fruitless and excessive speculation without ethical aim, by war for domination rather than by devotion to service by ecclesiasticism and fanaticism, by making ceremony an end, by priestly ambition, by clinging to an excessive individualism and the laissez-faire philosophy and practice which was the idol of the eighteenth century. It is not agreeable for us to analyze our defects, yet it is wholesome and necessary. An ancient Greek statesman told the people, after a military defeat, that if they had done their utmost he would despair of his country but that they had not employed their best powers, and that if they would rally with all energy and devotion, the day could yet be saved and honor restored. The church has amazing, undeveloped resources. Its wastes would furnish capital for world conquest. The correction of its errors and the joyful acceptance of its obligation would make it invincible. And therefore the loyal servants of the churches must deal with themselves critically and earnestly. Rather than bring indictments against one another, let us searchingly examine ourselves and revise our methods. Why should we not sincerely, earnestly, and without equivocation bring our leadership before the bar of impartial justice by asking ourselves such questions as these? Have we concentrated our studies and sermons on the essentials of Christianity, or have we lavished energy and time on topics in controversy among the faithful? If we should subordinate sectarian enterprises to the cause of missions in regions which have never heard of Jesus Christ and his gospel, would not millions of dollars be employed constructively rather than destructively? If the Christian people of a village or town would support one strong minister instead of starving four or five uneducated men, would there not be fewer mockers at the superstitions of the church and more institutions of charity, rational recreation, and ennobling education? If the fanatical zeal which now divides Christendom into warring camps were to be devoted to improving the dwellings of working men and providing social centers for youth, would not the world's skepticism be changed into admiring faith? 
If Christianity were presented in revivals as a consecration to the cause of elevating and enriching man's estate, and not merely as a selfish and absorbing desire for individual salvation, would this not be a convincing demonstration of the divinity of the message? If a blue pencil were drawn through every line of sermons which did not tend to increase love, peace, justice, and wisdom, might not the discourses suffer only in length while they improved in form and attractiveness? If ministers would exclude from their libraries the tomes which are unscientific or anti-scientific, the works which intensify bigotry and fill the head with errors and platitudes, might not many of the graduates of high schools and colleges be attracted to church attendance, who now remain away because they are amazed by the ineptitudes and anachronisms of a traditional and outworn teaching? Are there not hundreds of communities which lack public spirit, common aims, facilities for culture, because the churches remain apart and refuse to do teamwork? Are our ministers prepared by their education to grapple intelligently with the colossal moral problems of businessmen, and do they not too generally limit their instruction in righteousness to petty personal relations or to vociferous denunciations of the sins of ancient Israel? Are not the average businessman, farmer, and mechanic compelled to decide most of the problems of duty without any real intellectual help from the church? How much of this failure is due to cowardice, or to ignorance, or to preoccupation with merely ecclesiastical or even clerical schemes which have not the slightest bearing on the matters of life and death, of daily anxiety, of inner spiritual struggle to know the right? How much is due to the conventional training of pastors which still is under the influence of the monastic ideals which were nominally overturned by the Reformation? Whatever may be the causes, all who are not blind to the facts must see that the church and the ministry are too small a factor in the ethical tumult and anarchistic struggles of our age, in spite of our resources. 3. Signs of Promise the day is breaking in the east, of which the prophets told, and brightens up the sky of time, the Christian's age of gold. It is more agreeable to call attention to the evidence that the leaders of the church are awakening to a sense of their privilege and duty, and summoning the disunited hosts to cooperative action. The Zeal for Reformation The apostolical succession of servants of humanity has never once been broken, in all ages lofty spirits have protested against abuses and recalled Christians to the essentials of faith. In the darkest night of the ages a flickering lamp burned on many a humble altar. The renaissance of a humane Christianity was not produced by individual saints, but it was the outgrowth of a life which was in the church from the beginning, and which manifested itself in men of genius, and also in millions of gentle and obscure persons who lived without renown and rest in nameless graves. No one sect can claim the entire honor for this revival. The Roman Catholic Church has its galaxy of pure spirits, St. Francis, Elizabeth of Thuringia, St. Vincent de Paul, Frederick Ozanam, and many others. The Society of Friends, true to their name, gave us George Fox, Elizabeth Fry, William Penn, and the poet of the drab-skirt muse, John G. Whittier. The Methodist movement gave us the Wesleys, we hardly care to recall to which sect belonged Wilberforce, John Howard, the Earl of Shaftesbury, John Ruskin, Florence Nightingale, Octavia Hill, Thomas Carlyle, for they are just human. 
The Unitarians never could boast great numbers, but their William E. Channing and Theodore Parker compelled the ecclesiastical world to think of the working man, the slave, the drunkard, and they helped us all to see that an arbitrary and heartless tyrant, even if armed with omnipotence, cannot really be worshipped as God. Biblical criticism undermined the dogmatic foundations of the Church and compelled believers to seek refuge in God himself, rather than in a book about him, or in a creed, however valuable these are as witnesses and instruments. German economists became our allies when they insisted, with Wagner and Schmaller, that gains must rest on a basis of justice, and that the iron law of supply and demand ought to be directed by a righteous and intelligent purpose. Missions Foreign missionaries went out to save men from future punishment, and found the people in Africa and parts of the Orient in a present purgatory. Compassion for the multitude who were as sheep without a shepherd took possession of them, and while they told of God, heaven, and redemption, they taught the people to plough a deeper furrow, to weave a better cloth, to use quinine against malaria rather than sacrifice to devils, to treat women with courtesy, and to educate their children. Perhaps it could be shown that missionaries abroad were pioneers of the social work of the Church. Charles Dickens did something by holding up to ridicule those who sent blankets to the naked blacks of tropical Africa while they left starved children to freeze in the slums of London. But on the whole his caricature was unfair even then, and since he wrote the methods of missions have been rapidly improved. Medical and educational missions have given a start to the modern movements in the Orient and brought countless millions to the door of hope and light. These inspiring works have not only been the most convincing demonstration of the divine life in Christianity, a veritable revelation of its essence, but they have reacted upon the methods of the churches at home and made them more sensible, practical, and persuasive. Cooperation and Federation Over against the unhappy and wasting divisions of the church, we set the establishment of powerful institutions which represent unity and cooperation. There have been various overtures from ecclesiastical dignitaries to the sects, with amiable invitations of the tiger to the kid to lie down inside, but these have not been taken seriously, however kindly meant. There have been conventions, conferences, eloquent speeches in favor of unity, not without some result. But the most direct and effective movements have let church union wait for some immediate, urgent, and imperative service to humanity. The temperance movement has brought together members of all denominations for the common defense of youth, virtue, and religion from the brutalities and degradation of the drink traffic. The Union Sunday School conventions and associations have mobilized the forces of the whole Christian Church for the religious education of youth, and the Religious Education Association has brought to this agency the resources of modern biblical scholarship and the art of education. The Young Men's Christian Association by no means satisfies the demands of modern fellowship. Its creed basis excludes many of the finest spirits of our faith, but it has gone as far as its supporters have yet been ready to go, and in the right direction. It has gradually developed a ministry to the whole man, body, mind, and spirit, and it seems nearly ready to move forward with due caution beyond individual aid into the field of public service. The Federal Council of the Churches of Christ is also restricted in its organization by the fears and traditions of godly men, and yet it also has brought into effective cooperation a vast multitude of members of the popular branches of the Christian communion. In several states the home missionary societies have advanced, only too slowly, 
to a position of comity, courtesy, and economy, where they refused to subsidize the strife and vainglory of sectarianism. These movements, significant and valuable already, are still more hopeful in indicating the direction of future enterprises. 4. The wise direction of effort in the near future. The problems of the next century will be solved more easily if we attend strictly to our present urgent duty. The pillars and roof will be firm only as the foundation is sure. The requirements of social welfare in the present age are determined by the facts of this age as already sketched. The Church cannot and ought not to work out a separate program of its own. The consensus of experts in each branch of social science is the nearest possible indication of duty. The isolation of the Church makes its efforts barren. The leaven must be mixed with the dough. The seed must be buried in the soil. Even Catholic Europe has frequently abolished monasteries, and it would be atavistic return to barbarism to adopt a monastic or conventicle ideal for the Church. The duty of the leaders of the Church is to become acquainted, as well as they can, with the best methods known for advancing the physical, economic, and spiritual welfare of the home, the neighborhood, the town, the commonwealth, the nation, the world. The beginning of wisdom is to know more, and to cease to waste time on idle controversy and speculation. We shall find inspiration, worship, in the Bible, but we must seek duty in the relations of the age in which the Creator has placed us, as our fathers sought for it in their situation. The day of domination of the state by ecclesiastical authority has passed. Clerical interference in political parties is resented, and rightly, because clergymen have no professional qualifications for this task. But there never was an age when religion and religious personalities were more needed as an influence, when the Church had such a splendid opportunity to inspire men of action and power with hope, faith, and charity in their colossal and often discouraging tasks. The Characteristic Social Task of the Church Ministry of Religion The Church, with its ministry, has the most vital part in social service. It must have a theology which honest and intelligent men can understand and believe. It must help people to a reasonable moral view of God. It must have something wise and persuasive to say about the divine, about sin, prayer, the hope of immortality. To help men to see God is the highest and most precious social service. The Church must keep alive this belief until the whole world is civilized and refined enough to appreciate it. In doing this work, science must be respected in its field. No doctrine of faith or prayer or miracle must contradict the universality of the causal principle on which all knowledge rests. We must not ask a man of science to stultify his reason in order to worship and hope. We must teach men to find God everywhere, and not merely in the inaudible, exceptional, and extraordinary. We must be rid of magic, and keep mysticism in its place as poetry, and learn the ways of science. The seer and the poet and the preacher need not fear exact knowledge, if each remain true to his own call. The essence of theology is its doctrine of friendship as the spirit of the universe. All the arts of music, liturgy, oratory, poetry, painting, architecture, sculpture, city planning, are most glorious when they help humanity to trust, to hope, to love. And the Church holds a unique place in this world of beauty and idealism. No newspaper, no secular or ethical club can ever compete with it if it knows how to help men to see God, to love and reverence Him, to exult in hope.
the promotion of social reforms. In the improvement of physical, economic, and political conditions, the churches have a different duty to perform, and a less direct. But what they can do is great and is urgently needed. Sermon, song, and teaching may quicken the conscience, kindle pity, compassion, remorse, and kindness. At this point, the study of social science will furnish the church leaders with an inexhaustible supply of illustrations, long after books of religious anecdotes and feathers for arrows have been worn out. The newspapers and magazines paint stories, but they lack the fire of religious fervor to give momentum to sacrificial endeavor, and newspapers cannot organize institutions and train workers as the church can. Numerous groups of scientific specialists exist who possess knowledge, but who have comparatively few votes. The federated churches have millions of voting members, with vast and widely diffused political influence over the entire nation, but they have no authority in social science. A good understanding between the expert groups and the multitudes who profess a religion of benevolence and justice would be fruitful, and it seems to be at hand. The American Association for Labor Legislation, the American Prison Association, the National Conference of Charities and Correction, the National Child Labor Committee, the Consumers League, and others have long invited the cooperation of pastors, recently with much success. The Church has opportunities of instruction in social duties which belong to no other institution. The sermon can do something, but cannot deal with technical problems. Discussions in social meetings, classes, and societies are the most effective means of training the members to think socially, to consider the claims of justice in all relations of life. The social evangelist may have his uses, as the individualistic revivalist, if sane, has his place, but the serious and lasting work will be done in small groups of careful students, for educated leaders are afraid of the mob mind and seek quiet discussion. The leaders of these groups must ultimately be trained for their task in colleges and universities. They will be specialized ministers of churches. Groups of churches will combine to support them. One competent man in a populous county could direct the serious discussions of hundreds of leaders under a proper system of cooperation. It would be absurd to require that every pastor should be competent to guide studies over such vast fields. The Church will learn to specialize in religious leadership just as the universities, the great industries, and all other successful organizations have done. The Need of Workers Yet it will be entirely possible, and it is highly desirable, that all educated men and women, ministers included, during their course of instruction in secondary school, college, and professional school, should receive preparation for intelligent cooperation in the works of good citizenship. A curriculum has already been arranged for the accomplishment of this purpose, as mentioned above, and it includes a liberal provision for language, science, history, and literature. The Church can send laborers into the harvest, theological students, a few, but multitudes of others. There is not an effective society philanthropy which does not cry out, often in vain, for helpers. These helpers must be prepared for their duties, and there are educational institutions prepared to give the necessary instruction and training for social service. Many churches could select promising young people and provide for their professional education as directors of playgrounds, probation officers, charity visitors, librarians with the missionary spirit, social secretaries, teachers in reform schools, managers of clubs for youth, residents in settlements.
Social Politics The most perplexing problems before the Church which undertakes to exert any influence whatever on social politics and the material and cultural interests of the wage earners are those of trade unions and socialism. The problem of the liquor traffic is comparatively simple, because the financial interests involved are so plainly in recognized antagonism to order, security, health, morals, and religion. But the labor question divides the nation into two camps, and there is no present outlook for agreement. So far as charity is concerned, there is no very bitter controversy, except when the philanthropists regard it as a substitute for justice, and settle down in contented satisfaction with their alms deeds. Scientific charity itself in our time dispels the illusion of the finality of gifts, and its matter-of-fact records point to low wages, exhausting toil, poisonous air in workshops, reckless disregard of life in mines and on railways, unequal taxation and tax-dodging, exploitation of consumers and laborers, as among the chief causes of misery, the extravagance of the poor and alcoholism having been greatly exaggerated in this connection. Welfare Work Welfare work on the part of employers, as an expression of sincere kindness, awakens some protest, and is not received with enthusiastic satisfaction by the working men. They regard it, in the main, as an element of minor importance, even when it is not used to distract working men and win them away from their own unions. The real issue is one which we are loath to face, and one which we can meet only with adequate knowledge, sympathy, and sober judgment. Who is to control the conditions of labor and the distribution of the product? Socialism the scheme of socialism needs to be understood by Christian leaders, for nothing does greater harm than misrepresentation. Common objections to socialism are that it would mean equality of income, destruction of the right to hold and enjoy private property, perhaps community of wives and rearing of children by the state, atheism, a monotonous dead level of culture. None of these things belongs to the essence of socialism, although various socialistic writers have indulged in all sorts of adventures in these directions. Any definition of socialism is likely to be challenged, but perhaps we may say that the essence of socialism is the demand that all wealth used for social production should be under social control. This means that the managers of industry, commerce, and banking should be employees of the commonwealth, and responsible to the people for their conduct of affairs. It would be the extension of control by representatives of the people, not only over law and government, but over business. The product of industry would not be divided at the will of capitalist managers, nor by vote of the operators in particular industries, but under control of representatives of the entire public. Apparently there is no immediate prospect of this radical and revolutionary scheme being carried out, but there is a marked tendency to realize the principle of social control one step at a time, as in the supervision of powerful corporations by public utilities commissions, the Interstate Commerce Commission and courts, municipal ownership and management of water works, street cars, gas and electric works, the federal post office, parcel post, and federal telegraph and telephone service, obligatory insurance of all kinds under public regulation. The whole system of public inspection and regulation of factories, mills, mines, and railways to protect the life, limb, and health of employees is an expression of a determination to use the power of the government to restrict the arbitrary and irresponsible abuse of power by capitalist managers. The swift extension of social insurance means, in part, taking profits and dividends to add to wages. 
giving to the men who work hardest and suffer most a more adequate support and share in the heritage of civilization. Social insurance means that life is to be made secure and free from deadly worry and gaunt care, without dependence on uncertain and humiliating charity. Common Wealth The multiplication of public libraries, parks, museums, and schools signifies that modern democracy intends to bring the blessings of the higher realms of culture within reach of every living soul. The condemnation of crowded and insanitary dwellings is a policy widely accepted, and it will include municipal ownership of houses wherever the self-interest of capital fails to provide decently for the homes of men. The federal income tax, with its exemptions of the poor and its progressively increasing levy on superfluous revenues, is an expression of the determination of the people to curb and restrict luxury so long as millions of manual laborers have not enough to eat. Inheritance taxes have more than a mere financial purpose, they are a means deliberately adopted for the redistribution of earned and unearned fortunes, and a notice to the heirs of wealth, who toil not nor spin, that it will be well for them to learn a trade. In all this economic movement there is something deeper and nobler than physical hunger. There is a sense of justice, an ideal of brotherhood. Such legislation is too calm, steady, and secure of its aim to be under control of envy and revenge or anarchistic passion. It is the largest, finest, and most effective method of expressing solidarity, fraternity. So far from being a brief madness, this policy is the slow growth of centuries of discussion, and gradually has changed sentiments, customs, laws, and constitutions in all civilized lands. Perils of Progress While leaders of the Christian Church should study these modern policies intelligently and sympathetically, they should also be critical and able to understand the perils and difficulties of reform, especially of a radical and revolutionary plan like socialism. For direct popular control and administration of the complex industries of modern times, the masses of the people are yet unprepared. The difficulty of securing competent managers of large affairs is seen in the failure of many of our political ventures in industrial fields. We must get our training as we travel forward, and must learn from our mistakes, but the general direction of progress is made clear by noting the historical movement for social control over a period of several centuries. Fellowship in Religion, the Crown of All Progress Social service culminates in the fellowship of religion. Religion does indeed, as we have insisted, stimulate us to love all our fellow men, to do good as we have opportunity, to use all our resources and all institutions to promote the economic, physical, aesthetic, scientific, political well-being of mankind. Thus far, religion is a powerful means to a noble and rational end, toward which God himself is working with us and in us. And the Church, as the chief school of religion, cannot neglect the task of applying religious influences in the cause of humanity. Yet religion is a good in itself, and the highest, not merely a means to promote other ends, and the specific, characteristic function of the Church is not that of promoting science, art, or preventive medicine. There are special institutions for each of these worthy objects, and the Church has no call to meddle with their administration. As one of my honored colleagues has said, We need the Church, a community of men in which we interchange the faith of our heart in living, mutual fellowship with the hearts of other men. The certitude of our faith depends upon the discernment of itself in others' hearts. 
the endearment of our faith is increased by seeing the enlargement of our faith. The very satisfactions which are achieved by the functions of religion can become our possession only in case that religion be not means, but end as well. The climax of the social service of the Master was not in healing the sick and giving sight to the blind, but in preaching the gospel to the poor. And who are so poor as the rich who know not God? End of chapter 11, part 5